Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The sinking of Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, in July 1545, was a tragic event. But, paradoxically... It has become a great boon to those of us who study the Tudors. For when she sank, 19,000 objects sank with her and were preserved in the silt of the Solent. They include musical instruments, leather boots, knit combs, rosary beads, coins, dice, longbows, cannon, navigational instruments, tankards, candle holders, bellows, mirrors and ink pots and much else besides, that together offer us an unrivalled glimpse of ordinary life in Tudor England. If that weren't enough, 16th century attempts to depict the tragedy and Tudor efforts to retrieve the ship also themselves allow us access into aspects of Tudor life that we would have no other way of recovering. In the third of our specials on the Mary Rose, today we examine what she can tell us about life in the Tudor era. We begin with Dr Dominic Fontana, formerly Senior Lecturer in Geography at the University of Portsmouth and now a Fellow of the Society of Antiquaries and the Royal Geographical Society. Dr Fontana and I are looking at a contemporary image of the Mary Rose's sinking, a picture known as the Cowdray engraving. Originally part of a set of five, the Cowdray was painted between 1545 and 1548 for Henry VIII's courtier, Sir Anthony Brown, and it shows the Battle of the Solent and much about life in Tudor Portsmouth in brilliant, microscopic and revealing detail. First, we probably ought to look at Henry himself, here on his horse, right in centre stage of the picture. Just behind him is Sir Anthony Brown. And Sir Anthony was the owner of Cowdray House between 1543 and his death in 1548. And the original painting from which this engraving was taken was adorning the dining parlour at Cowdray House. So I think very much Sir Anthony Brown's visual aid for his storytelling at dinner to tell his dinner guests just how important he was in saving Henry's kingdom in 1545. You see, he's right behind the king. He was master of the king's horse, so it is right that he should be there. 
right behind the king, and alongside him, Charles Brandon, first Duke of Suffolk, with great white beard there, who was commander of the land forces at Portsmouth at that time. So members of the Privy Council, both Sir Anthony and Charles Brandon, with the king. And then it records other people that they would have known, other people in the court. One can't identify all of them, and it's a bit like having a family photo album that you've lost the names to. But you can make a fair assessment of some of them. So, for instance, here in the centre at the bottom of the picture, we've got a little family group of a man with furs and a woman who will be his wife and a younger teenager with them. And that's almost certainly Sir William Paulet, who was governor of Portsmouth in 1545, his wife Elizabeth, and their youngest son Giles, who was about 16. And there they are in the picture. And just being directed towards them, there's a man here who's gesturing towards them, and he's with a very fine lady who's accompanied by a fife and drum and a huge cross of St George and a little retinue of a bodyguard of pikemen and a bowman. And they're moving across here towards to be shown to the governor of Portsmouth. So that suggests that that's almost certainly the Queen, Catherine Parr. Wow. And so do you think the reason these people, the little family of the Paulets, are standing sort of facing the spectator is because they've essentially lined up for a royal reception line? Exactly so. And that little group is part of the story. Sir William Paulet, of course, was very well known to Sir Anthony Brown. So he'd want to be recording his family and his friends and wider family connections. And over here, where we've got Francois van der Delft being shown a group of troops here, we've probably got Chidiac Paulet, another of Sir William Paulet's sons, who had brought a group of 200 fully equipped, fully armed arquebusiers and pikemen from Basingstoke down to Portsmouth. And that was notable because they were properly equipped, properly trained troops. And he's having the chance to show off to Francois van der Delft, look, we've got proper troops here. Not a lot of them, not enough of them, but they're here. And then around the rest of the image, we've got lots of little incidents of things going on, of groups sitting around drinking flagons of ale, or over here they're roasting some duck or geese on a spit roast over a fire with a cauldron on top and a woman with her big ladle up in her hand. And these groups of people greeting one another, guns laid out in the various smaller fortifications around Portsmouth, and this whole mass of tents, highly decorated tents. Those were the tents that Henry VIII had his own portable camp that he brought with him, and they would have been the ones that he had at Field of Cloth of Gold in 1520 kept carefully and really quite grand field accommodation. Henry always thought of himself as a warrior prince, so he was very much a man who wanted to be out there camping with the lads and would have seen that as being an important part of campaigning. There's also a massive great gibbet. 
Although it's not at this point got a body hanging off from it, but it could do at some stage, but it's got a brazier. And that's a signalling brazier to be able to give warning to other places of attack by the French. There is actually another gibbet over here, just by the entrance to the town of Portsmouth on the seaward side. And that was traditionally used to hang the bodies of miscreant sailors as a warning to any sailors entering Portsmouth that they had to behave themselves. There's a lot of women in this picture, which is wonderful. We've got all sorts of women presiding over things. There's a lady here, there's another one with her hand on her hip here, wearing a rather wonderful hat, all over the place. Tell me about what we can learn about the women. Well, it's interesting that there are these women in here, and some of them are carrying out domestic tasks. They're with husbands or in the town here, and they're dressed in a very domestic sort of fashion rather than high fashion. There are some more that have got uh, really very fashionable garb. There's this pair of women. One of them's got a face mask. Now, why that is, I don't know. Smallpox, perhaps? Could possibly be. It is this photo album that you haven't got the captions that go with them and it's so tantalising to see these things here. Now I suppose we also have to think about the person who created this engraving and whether this is an imaginary cast or whether these are standard people or whether he saw this on the day. Well I think it was directed to the original painting by Sir Anthony Brown himself. And I think we might consider him to be something of a railway modeller, somebody who really wants the accuracy to be just so. And it's about the people he knew and the events that went on as he saw it and his part in what was happening. And you must also remember that this picture was one of a set of five pictures that were at Cowdray House three of which covered the 1544 campaign in France, where Henry landed his army, marched on the town of Boulogne, laid siege to it and captured it from the French. And the other, the last picture in the sequence, is of the coronation procession of Edward VI. And Sir Anthony Brown plays a very prominent role in that coronation procession, right behind Edward VI, in the procession, but with Henry VIII's horse without rider. So highly symbolic in that coronation ceremony. And very much Sir Anthony Brown playing his role as master of the king's horse. So it really does tell us something about the whole sequence of pictures and the way that Sir Anthony obviously wanted the accuracy to be just so. I mean, it is intriguing what we see, and as, in fact, as you pointed out to me, we have this young lady down here who's in the prow of one of the small commercial boats in the commercial dock, the Camber, and she hasn't got a hat. The only woman I can see in the painting without a hat. Why should that be? These things are intriguing stories. We know a lot about the buildings because we can see them in the contemporaneous maps. So these ones here are the Swan Bakery where there were four bread ovens that would have provided a lot of baking capacity for the town. 
we can see the way that the defences are laid out. We can see the storehouses. This one here, for example, was burnt down in 1584. And we know that because we have an equally detailed map of Portsmouth from 1584. And you can see where it's marked on that map. And it's just amazing how all these bits of detail come together. So it would have been a really enormous happening here at Portsmouth. The town itself probably only had a resident population of about 1,200. So 12,000 troops descending on the place would have totally overwhelmed all the ability to supply sufficient food, other than that which Henry's army could bring with it. And that's one of the things that, again, if looking back through all the documentary accounts and all the letters that were going through the Privy Council, so many of them concern the paying for and the acquisition of victuals for the troops. And, you know, individual bills going through and having to be paid. So we can tell quite a lot about the immense pride that Henry's Privy Council and his court had in their ability to secure the supply chain for food and victuals for their army in the field. Now you have mapped this onto contemporary maps so we can point out key buildings from Portsmouth at the time, many of which are still standing. What can we see here? Well, we can see the principal defensive structures of the square tower, which was originally built during Henry's father's reign, Henry VII, and the round tower. Again, origins in Henry VII's reign, but the tower as we see it here, very much part of Henry's refortification into stone. The detail as it's shown here matches perfectly with the contemporaneous maps, particularly the 1545 map with this palisade around here, the steps going up into the round tower. And the round tower was basically a gun platform to provide fire across the very narrow entrance to Portsmouth Harbour. And one of the key things about the defensive nature of the harbour is that you've got to sail directly towards Southsea Castle and then run a ship along the shoreline for probably about a mile and a half before you come to this incredibly narrow harbour entrance that's, what, 400 yards or so across? And you can only do that with a sailing ship when you've got the tide on a flood tide to come in and on an ebb tide to go out. So that means that you know that the only times that ships are going to be coming in or out of the harbour are determined by the tidal cycle. And they can only do so one at a time and they need to leave enough space in between them because if one of those ships runs aground or fouls up, Everything else is just going to pile up straight into it. Very difficult manoeuvre without engines. These days it's fairly straightforward because the engines will just drive the ships directly in or directly out, independently of the tidal currents. So it's really interesting with the detail of how the technology would work in relation to the environment and all the people and the mass of people that are needed to be able to support ships and troops to be able to provide enough beer for them. And in fact, we've got four breweries here 
in what was known as Four Breweries Court, and they were set up by Henry VIII to ensure constant supply of beer for the ships and for the troops. And that would have been a massive industrial process at the time. They were producing something like 500 barrels of beer a day each. So either the population of Portsmouth was permanently drunk or they were providing huge quantities of beer. And you see all the ships out there, they would have required a lot. The ships had large crews who would have been thirsty crews. They would have been hungry crews. They would have all needed food and beer so that they'd be able to keep themselves well. And just tell me a little bit more about the other buildings we can see. We've got a cathedral. Well, St Thomas's was a parish church at the time, and in fact you've got a big tower on it and so on. The church is still there. On the roof is shown yet another of these braziers. This group of buildings here, where you've got a perimeter wall that runs around the outside of it, and that was the Domus Dei, the House of God, which was a monastery and hospice. Largely was engaged in the business of offering accommodation to people who were travelling for pilgrimages both in and out of the country. They were often competing with St Thomas's Parish Church for religious business. So there was a bit of rivalry going on between the two establishments. But by 1545? By 1545, the uh, monastery had been closed down. And in fact, at the time of the 1545 battle, was being used as an arms store. So it was an armoury and powder store. This is a small chapel that was built by the people of Portsmouth to atone for the murder of a bishop and the Pope had excommunicated the town of Portsmouth from the Catholic Church at the time, so that got them off the hook. (laughs) But again, was closed by 1545. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race, I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Over 19,000 artefacts were recovered from the Mary Rose wreck site. If you visit the Mary Rose Museum in Portsmouth Historic Dockyard today, which I urge you to do, you can view this breathtaking collection, where intimate everyday objects mingle with huge guns of war placed where they would have been on the many decks of the Mary Rose. It's an immersive experience that reminds us of how truly fantastic and unique a collection of objects this is. Hannah Matthews is a curator at the Mary Rose Trust and tells me more. It's an incredible collection, the world's largest collection of Tudor artefacts. And it's the scale of the collection that is unbelievable in the fact that everyday objects are there. It's that snapshot of that moment in time when the ship was sinking, the people that were on board, their own personal belongings, but everything that you would need for a warship going into battle. And it's the number of artefacts, but it's the sizes of the artefacts as well that's so astonishing. We've got the guns and the artillery equipment, but we've also got tiny dice that men would have been using to play games with during their leisure time on board. The personal artefacts that connect us so closely to some of those individuals and so many can be seen here alongside the wreck and they just don't exist elsewhere. So in terms of these everyday artefacts, they just wouldn't have survived in people's own collections over time. The best example I like also is the Tudor firewood. So down in the hold, got the galley, there's two brick built ovens and alongside there, there was the firewood that would have been used to heat those ovens. And I believe it's the only example of Tudor firewood because it would have either been used or burnt or that just doesn't exist anywhere else. So to be able to see these objects are so rare, so exceptional, and yet were everyday objects, it's remarkable to have that in the collection. I'd like you to tell us about a few more of your favourites. So you said they tell us about people's personal lives. What's a favourite object of yours that gives insight into people's intimate personal lives? I think in terms of personal artefacts, there's the gentleman of the upper deck who we believe to be Italian through some of the DNA analysis we've done. But in his chest that was located near to him is a carved panel, the Embriachi panel, which at the time of the Mary Rose sinking would have already been a hundred years or so old itself. It always gets me thinking personally, is this a family heirloom that this particular individual had kept? close to him and had personal meaning to him and his family, especially if he himself was from Italy and it's part of his own heritage. The fact that he had that on board with him going into battle and the story that can tell us in terms of his heritage and his 
family meaning potentially. I think that really does, in that one tiny little panel with these two beautiful carved angels, tells its own story as well about the origins of that. Describe it for us. It's a small panel, you say? It is. It potentially is part of a casket, so a larger object. So it's probably about an inch wide and a few inches tall, carved of ivory, and it has two angels in procession. The other panels on the casket could have been a full procession of these angelic figures. And the workshop that it can be dated to was operating in the early 15th century and was only in operation for a number of decades around that period. So it can be dated quite specifically to them. And yes, a hundred plus years before this gentleman had it himself. Yes, yeah, quite a small piece. It's on display in one of the showcases here and it's beautiful in its own right, but I love that connection it has to this person and their family and his heritage. So yes, we've got that powerful sense of family and also a real insight potentially into his spirituality and how he understood the afterlife, all in this tiny panel. How long did people think they were going to be on board? Did they realise they were just going to be on it for a day or several days or did they think that they were going to be present for a voyage? I think for this particular campaign, it wouldn't have been seen as a long journey or voyage. So it was very much home defence, essentially, not far from Portsmouth, defending the harbour with the French fleets coming to attack. But in terms of people in that occupation, you would have had your belongings and they'd have gone everywhere with you. So you see that in a number of the chests and the personal artefacts that have been recovered. You can imagine the individuals having their belongings and taking them wherever they go for however long. But yes, this campaign it wouldn't have, from the outset have been seen as a long campaign at all. It shows how dear certain things were to people and also the need to get up and go and be sent, <laughs> sent to your next task when you're in that occupation as they were. Dr Alexandra Hildred, who is Head of Research and Curator of Ordnance and Human Remains at the Mary Rose Trust, was part of the dive team who excavated the warship 40 years ago. Inventories list huge numbers of objects, and in particular the one in 1547 after the death of Henry VIII is very descriptive for his objects. So you'll have tapestries that are described in huge details, but not so many of the real things survive. And it's the mundane things that don't, although he might have all these coffers, these chests, we've got the chests of some of the mariners, some of the crew, rather than the king's possessions. So it's stuff that doesn't make its way necessarily into a museum, that you're then having this wealth of information about everyday things that you've got some reference to historically. And a lot of it is just lists of accounts of things, so many ton of whatever, so many describing the faggots of wood. We've actually got the lengths of faggots, but we've got the real things, and you can say this is what that inventory is referring to. So the same with things like the types of iron guns. We've got a list of names, but nobody knew what they were like until we found those objects and be able to juggle around inventories that say, these guns had stone shot, these guns had iron shot, and the names of the shot and the guns, and find them together loaded. And you can say, okay, guns usually go from the biggest to the smallest. Oh, the biggest wrought iron guns that have stone shot are called port pieces on the inventories, because all the inventories usually go from largest to smallest. So you're almost adding the visual, the flesh to the bones of the stuff which is in archives. But then you can see the real thing, and you can handle it, and you can put it in the museum, and we have it in context. So it brings it to life for everybody to see, because... This is open to the public, everyone can come and see it. But I do feel also that there's a sense in which it does give us insights that we couldn't get elsewhere. 
just even into things like how people spent their leisure time. Again, you've got records of people gambling or dicing or playing cards in various accounts. And I'm a big fan of the historical accounts, don't get me wrong. But what that actually meant in practice, you only get by seeing the dice that you've got here, for example. Absolutely. And then thinking, where was that dice? It was in a tiny little hard leather box. Now, that's a dice shaker. And the backgammon set, which was we thought it was a bit of a window or something because it was folded down together. It actually folds in the middle. And when you first open it up, along the edge, there's a little, almost a ledge along all four edges. And then inside, you've got the different colored diamonds of the different U that form the backgammon set itself with these tiny little wooden counters in it. And the magic of opening that, we didn't open it underwater. It came out of the carpenter's cabin. And that night when we registered in the Fines Bay, only a couple of us were there. And the deputy archaeological director was there. And he said, we've got to open it. And we opened it up and suddenly you realized it's a backgammon set and you're looking at a backgammon set that was found on the southernmost bench bunk within the cabin of the carpenter underneath the window that he cut in the outside of the ship himself and in order to do that he had to relieve a tiny little bit about of the wooden chain plate the big thing that takes all of the chains that go up to support the moss he'd had to cut a bit out of it so that he could have a flap that would close when the water came towards the ship and you just can't get more personal than that And it is the real thing that you're looking at. And that's what we've tried to create in our long galleries opposite the ship, is we've gone through the dive logs as we and the other 500 people who dived on the ship wrote them and came up with the best scenario that represents what happened in that area. And then you look at the ship structure and the same area with the objects in it and our best results. So when we have divers reunions, which we have every five years, and we're due to have one this October for the 40th, and they say it's just like swimming down the main deck, but you can see and flooding back all of the environmental things. And many of the objects have markings on them, don't they, to identify them so we can tell who the owner was, or at least we can tell the owner's mark. <laughs> yeah, we've got quite a number of them, including iron shot with an H stamp on it. So, you know, you get hit by 15 kilogram iron shot and you know it's from King Henry VIII because it's got his H on it. And H on things like the beach dishes, which were found outside the galley. But there are many things with personal marks on them, very complex geometric marks, often with a bit of an initial like W or various other things. Some we think are representing religious marks, but those are scattered around the ship. So that it's not just the ordinance. It's not just the beach bowls by the galley. They're very personal things, sometimes just hidden between ship's timbers. So a couple of them came up during the washing of the ship once she came ashore because they were hidden down between the sides of the inner and the outer planking where somebody just left it. And we found a complete scabbard with the top of a sword with the handle. Again, just stuck down where it could fit behind a gun or beside one of the gun ports on the main gun deck. And it's things like that make you realize that 34-year working life of that ship, she had all these little spaces where people would tuck things and hide things and she was a home. The raising of the Mary Rose in 1982 was not the first attempt made to recover her. In fact, it was tried just two weeks after she sank. When their efforts failed, it became a Tudor salvage operation. The most valuable contents on board were the ship's guns, but to raise them off the seabed meant using divers, and that meant calling on the services of expert African freedivers. Professor Kevin Dawson is a historian who specialises in aquatic culture in the African diaspora. It feels especially appropriate to be marking the work of Africans in Tudor England 
during Black History Month. Professor Dawson, thank you so much for joining me. I wanted to ask you why in the 1540s, when Henry VIII wanted to recover the guns of the Mary Rose, why did he turn to African underwater divers to do so? Yeah, I think this is the heart of it. It's because traditional African techniques that had been used for hundreds of years actually proved more efficient than modern salvage techniques. So when the Mary Rose sank, the English first tried to refloat her and they were unsuccessful at doing that. And so then they hired Italian salvage divers to try and recover goods off of the Mary Rose. And it seems that the depth that the Rose was at made it challenging for those Italians. And so the Italians ended up actually hiring these eight or so African divers and employing them then as salvage divers to basically do what's known as free diving, which is basically just diving with the air in your lungs to recover goods off of the Mary Rose, primarily like the deck guns and things like that that were really valuable. And free diving is very difficult, isn't it? What does it take? It takes years of training to really perfect the technique, really honing your mind and your body, learning how to breathe properly in order to fully oxygenate the air in your lungs, learning to remain calm in stressful situations, which I would imagine diving on the Mary Rose would have been extremely stressful. We know that they're from Senegal. They were members of the Wolof, the Labo, which is a Wolof-speaking ethnic group. And they would have been much more accustomed to diving in warmer waters. And so they're coming and diving in waters that were 50 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that conversion is in Celsius, but it would have been really cold, especially the deeper they got. It would have been colder as they went down. And I would have to imagine that given that there was anti-boarding netting on the rows, that they would have encountered skeletal remains, the water would have been murky, and so it would have been probably at least stressful, perhaps scary for them to dive down into those conditions. Yes, it actually sounds horrific when you put it like that. But this was an African area of expertise. Yes, it was. And so these divers, as Europeans were arriving in Africa, In the 1400s, the 1500s, they recognized that many Africans were really strong swimmers and underwater divers. And they document Africans diving to harvest shellfish to salvage goods. These divers had actually been working off the island of Arguin, which is off the coast of Mauritania. And so they had been apparently salvaging goods from Portuguese wrecks there before they were hired and brought to European waters. And so, yeah, they would have been expert at free diving and salvaging. You mentioned there were eight of them, and I know that we know the names of some of these salvage divers. What do we know of them and how do we know about them? So we know the names of at least the three primary divers, Jockey Francis, John Ike, and George Black. And so obviously those aren't their birth names. One, Jockey Francis being the head diver, having a Portuguese name, and then the other two having anglicized names. The other five Africans, we don't know their names, but we know their names and we do have their voices in English court records because Peter Corsi or Pietro Paolo Corsi, who was the Italian who hired them, he ends up getting into trouble. He's accused by other Italian merchants in Southern England of stealing goods off of a wreck that he had been salvaging for them. And so these divers actually testify in court on his behest and end up helping Corsi obtain his freedom and so that they can continue salvaging the Rose. How do you think they ended up working for Corsi in the first place? 
That's really interesting, and it's a lot to do with, I think, speculation. I would imagine that just through maritime channels, many Italian merchants were working for Portuguese sailors. And so they would have probably heard through these channels of maritime communication of African divers' expertise. And so it seems like Corsi hired them and had brought them first maybe into the Mediterranean a couple years before they salvaged the Mary Rose and were working ships there. And they also were working ships then right before Corsi got basically the contract to salvage the Rose off of southern England. You mentioned that he hired them. I know there's been some speculation about whether Francis and his team were enslaved or free. What do you make of that? No, and I think that's a really important point, is that these divers, they challenge a lot of assumptions. One, that any African who arrived in England at that time must have been enslaved. And so, no, they were clearly hired because in the court records, they describe actually being housed at the Dolphin Inn in Portsmouth and being paid and receiving food and drink. England did not have a legal status of slavery at that time, so it was illegal to enslave people. And the other Italians who Corsi ends up getting into trouble with, they try to claim that these men were enslaved, and they try to actually seize them as slaves and make them their property in order to restore some of the wealth that they lost when they're shipwrecked. And so Francis testifies in court that no, he was born on Arguin Island, which he calls the Island of Guinea, and that he was free, and that he went to England as basically a laborer, a maritime laborer. So yeah, we know that slavery was not also legal at that time in England. Do we know anything about how well the team were treated? We don't know. The English had not fully created concepts of race. They had begun to racialize Africans. In some regards, the English regarded themselves as the most civilized and sophisticated people on earth. And they did regard then Africans as being less civilized, less sophisticated than themselves. And so in some ways, it would be probable that they encountered some forms of racialized discrimination. But importantly, they were valued for their skill and for their expertise, for the wisdom that they had and the ability to dive 60 feet below the surface of the water. And that expertise caused them, like any kind of racialized assumptions about Africans to be set aside. And so the Admiralty Court, as they're hearing the case about Corsi, they value the testimony of Jockey Francis, who says that these other Italians were actually inhibiting their ability to salvage the king's ship in the springtime, which was the best time of year for salvaging the ship, because that's when waters were calm. And so the Admiralty Court then basically frees Corsi, in part because of these divers' testimony, and allows them to continue salvaging the Mary Rose. Am I right in understanding that in this litigation, there are ways in which Jackie Francis and the others also act almost in defense of their own legal status. They very much did, and that's a really good point because the Italians had more developed concepts of race, if you will. They understood slavery, and so they claimed that Jackie Francis was a Moor, meaning a Muslim, and that he was born in a place where there were no Christians. And so at that time, it was, in parts of Europe and Italy included, legal for Christians to enslave non-Christians. And so Jockey Francis and the others say, no, we were free Africans. 
they were coming from African societies also that recognized slavery. So they understood what slavery was. They understood themselves to be free. And so, yes, in English court records, they do testify that they were free and deserve to be treated as such. And that's fascinating, isn't it? Because we've got, on the one hand, a religion-based justification for enslavement at that point in time. And on the other, we've got Jackie Francis and the team showing that they not only have this amazing skill and expertise, but also have gumption and are active in their own self-defense and demonstrate the agency. It's so interesting to find in court records. Yeah, and I think there you can see their connections to a lot of other African people later in England and other parts of Europe, and then also in the North American colonies, where Africans quickly understood the complexities and how early concepts of race and then concepts of religion could be used to claim that somebody was not a citizen or was eligible to be enslaved. And then they used court systems to argue that no, they were free. And while they might not have been a citizen of England, they were not enslavable. And so, yes, we see this early on, again, in England, in colonial Virginia, Africans doing the same thing, recognizing how to navigate court systems and social dynamics in order to obtain or to maintain their freedom. What do you think that the presence of these Africans working in this highly skilled trade in Southampton in the years after the Mary Rose sank tells us about the presence of Africans in Europe at this time? What kind of insight does it give us? I think it reveals that there was a significant African presence in Europe at the time. We don't always have the records. We know that, for example, that these Africans had been diving in England and apparently in the Mediterranean before salvaging the rose. We know that they went on to salvage afterwards, that they were hired by the Earl of Arendelle to salvage one of his ships afterwards. But we don't have all of these records. Either records weren't kept or they've been lost or they're hidden away in an archive and scholars just haven't found them yet. So I think the thing is that we know that they're there. We just haven't seen them. We just haven't found all of the evidence yet. But I'm sure as we continue to look through records, especially personal records, we are going to find more accounts of Africans in Europe and in England in particular. Such a fascinating point. We know about these people just because of happenstance, just because there's a case against their employer. Otherwise, we wouldn't know they were there either. Exactly. There's no other record that I know of of them having worked the Mary Rose except for this court case. It just shows us it's the tip of the iceberg. What was the legacy of this incredible dive to try and recover the guns of the Mary Rose? Yeah, so the Mary Rose, she ends up inspiring generations of English colonists in the Americas to begin looking for ways to replicate that wealth. So by 1600 or so, as the English are colonizing the Americas, the name of the Mary Rose and the name of these divers has been lost. But the memory lives on and the fact that divers were more efficient than diving bells caused the English to realize that they could actually recover spectacular amounts of wealth from shipwrecks in the Americas, namely by plundering treasure galleons. So what the Spanish were doing is they were amassing all the gold and silver that they had stripped from the Aztec and the Inca, amassing it in Havana, Cuba, and then once a year sending these treasure fleets out from Havana to Spain, and they're sending them through the Bahamas and up along the coast of Florida. And they're doing this during hurricane season. 
And so time and again, these ships sail into a hurricane and one ship or sometimes the entire fleet would go down. And English colonists from Bermuda, Jamaica, the Bahamas, North Carolina, New England, they amass and they strip the shipwrecks of 20 or 30 tons of gold and silver in four to six weeks using teams of African salvage divers. And so, yeah, these divers, they end up creating really spectacular, obviously, amounts of wealth that's then reinvested into colonization. You can see that the salvagers are investing this wealth, buying plantations, buying cattle, buying ships, buying enslaved people. The colonial governments are using this wealth to buy cannons to protect themselves from Spain and from France and to build harbors and port facilities and things like that. Well, a shiver has gone down my spine to think that the expertise of these Africans was being exploited in order to ensure the colonization and further enslavement of others. Thank you for making the link for us and explaining it. And those who want to know more should pick up a copy of your book. Can you tell us the name of what they should read? Yes, it's Undercurrents of Power, Aquatic Culture in the African Diaspora. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for joining me for these podcast specials. I do hope you've enjoyed them. I'm grateful to the whole cast of experts who've helped me to piece together the Mary Rose story over these three episodes. Professor Kevin Dawson, Dr. Dominic Fontana, Dr. Alexandra Hildred, Hannah Matthews and Professor Eleanor Schofield. The Mary Rose is the only 16th century warship on display anywhere in the world. The dramatic story of her sinking is only matched by the thrilling story of her recovery. In investigating her history and collection, through archaeology and marine conservation, geography and material science, we can learn so much about the reality of Tudor life. This Tudor grave has become our window into their world. Thank you to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and researcher, Esther Arnott. And thank you to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. 
In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.